0: Thanks very much Vice Chancellor um, for those warm words, it really is wonderful to be back at UCT. Uh, This building didn't exist when I was here and when I left I thought I would never come back and this just goes as one example of how the future is always different uh, to what one expects it to be. Uh, But UCT remains uh, an institution which is going to be at the centre of the future development of Africa and I think its ripples will go around the world and it's lucky, I think, to have Max uh, as its new Vice-Chancellor in leading it into the 21st century. What I aim to do in about 50 minutes uh, is to give you a glimpse of some of the things that we're thinking about in Oxford, Uh, clearly 92 uh, years of the future, because we're there for the 21st century, uh, in 50 minutes is a tall order. Um, So, uh, forgive me if I don't cover everything in adequate depth and uh, I hope there'll be time in the questions and answers to go further into the areas that really interest you. Uh, Clearly, any thinking about the future is going to be very unpredictable. But before we think about the future, let's just think about the last 2,000 years. The extraordinary thing about the last 30, 40 years is that this has been a period unlike any time in human history. Uh, It's been a period where there's been unprecedented achievements uh, on our planet. And I think if you were stepping back and thinking where would you see the major changes of the last 2,000 or indeed 20,000 years, it would be this period of the last 30, 40 years in our history. And so we're very, very fortunate people. We live at a time where there's been more rapid change and more excitement and potential than there ever has been. And when we think about the next generation and the generations to come in the 21st century, if this trend continues, uh, there will be an unrecognizable world in many dimensions in the future, a world in which we can really overcome the principal burdens uh, that hold us back today, poverty, chronic diseases, and hopefully the many, many other challenges which we'll discuss. This is an exponential uh, graph on the right-hand axis. You see that population growth has exceeded income growth for the first time in about a thousand years. It took a period about a thousand years ago, a period of mass migration, of huge intellectual coming together, of Islamic civilizations with Christian civilizations, people moving, new technologies, new ideas being formed that led to that sort of development. And we've had that sort of phenomena in this period of globalization. Globalization is a period of enormous challenge, as we've seen with the financial crisis, which I'll come back to. It has an underbelly, an underbelly which makes us all very vulnerable and interdependent. But it also has provided potential. It's provided potential through new technologies, new ideas, and allowed uh, humanity to leap ahead in a way that was unimaginable only 50 years ago. And so in this time, life expectancy at birth has increased by about 20 years. It took, and this is of course an average global number which masks great, great differences within it. It took from about the Stone Age till then to achieve a 20-year improvement in life expectancy. So we've seen concertinaed into this short period of time, huge achievements which were unimaginable. And on virtually any indicator that you look at, and of course, economists and social development people always argue about which indicators to use and the value of the data. But on virtually any indicator, there's been this leap forward. If you look at illiteracy, if you look at infant mortality, if you look at anything that matters to you, there has been a leap forward uh, in many, many dimensions. Of course, what this masks is a growing inequality. So, that while many have enjoyed the benefits of globalization and have achieved things which were unimaginable, within one city, let alone across between countries, there are differences in life expectancies of over 30 or 40 years. That's true of Glasgow, it's true of London, as it is of Cape Town. So, this sort of differential within society and between societies is another new phenomenon, uh, and of course, it is becoming more and more extreme and uh, anyone that looks at the Gini coefficient data will pick this up. So we've had a period of amazing achievement, but there are major questions and uh, I'd like to touch on some of these in the coming 45 minutes or so. The first thing to stress is I hope that you don't think that I'm predicting because then I will be defeating myself And that I believe that predictions are always almost inevitably wrong except when by luck uh, people get things right. And this is true even of extremely smart people, uh, and some not so smart people, but smart people with great institutions behind them. Maggie Thatcher, I think, was a reasonably smart person, MI5 and MI6 were reasonably smart institutions, but they got it dramatically wrong. And so did the leaders of great corporations, great intelligence agencies many thinkers that spend their lives and institutions thinking about the future find that even within a six-month period they're wrong. And so it was with pundits in the U.S. on Obama's recent victory. And so it has been, of course, with the financial crisis where the institutions created to manage this, the IMF, the International Financial Stability Forum, and the Bank for International Settlements didn't see it coming even a month before it was happening. And you have to ask yourself, why are these institutes so unable, uh, with all the resources at their ability, to think about the future in a way which is going to be helpful to us? And should we just stop thinking about the future? The problem with stopping to think about the future is that all of the rest of our lives and the next generation's lives will be in the future. And so I think the great tragedy is that we don't spend more time thinking about the future. Governments, companies, individuals, of course, will live their future lives, and so it's important that we begin to get a handle on how can we better understand these. And I'd like to suggest that it's more about the systemic issues and the major trends than the short-term trends that we need to focus But even if we look at these, and this is population dynamics going out till 2050, we see huge ranges of uncertainty. This is the United Nations population uh, projections, and you see that there's a gap of almost 4 billion people in their projections, low and high cases to the year 2050. That's about two-thirds of the current population of the planet, with massive implications for anything you can think about. Uh, Of course, climate change, uh, consumption of goods and services, quality of life, everything else. So these things, which we used to think were relatively predictable, like demographic trends, structural trends, are proving themselves to be even less predictable in the future. And if you break this down by region, you'll get similar things happening. And that's because we really don't understand the underlying drivers of population growth, which are, of course, how long people live and how many children they have. Uh, The longevity trends are amazing. Uh, The good news about my lectures, however boring you find it, you'll increase your life expectancy by 10 minutes while you're here, Uh, just because of the major changes that are happening out there. So even That's always a good thing when you're not really enjoying yourselves, just think that your life expectancy is actually improving. it's improving by about two years per decade okay? uh, and that's a, been a very stable trend over a very long period of time I actually think these are conservative trends I think we're going to see an, a sharper increase in uh, life expectancy. There are people in my school in Oxford who believe there are people around today that are going to live to 150 uh, and indeed there are people that think they're going to live for much longer and that's because when you begin to appreciate the, the miracles of medicine uh, one can see why this may be the case. Of course with increasing dispersity again, increasing inequality, a characteristic of these very high outcomes. But these are average numbers. You'll also see convergence between the regions uh, in these uh, projections of life expectancy and creeping up uh, for every decade by about two years, so well over over 18. We'll come back to the implications, the aging implications and other implications. Of course, this region uh, tells a different story, dramatically different, um, and these are historical numbers, these are not projections, uh, where life expectancy has declined uh, dramatically, whereas really virtually everywhere else in the world, except in the former Soviet Union, uh, it's been increasing. Uh, and the key question, of course, for, for us in Southern Africa, is what happens with this, where they stabilize and turn up. And this is largely a story, but not entirely, about HIV AIDS and the dynamics around that. Um, now, if you look at the, the fertility numbers, they're almost as startling as the longevity numbers. People used to think that these were rather stable numbers but they've declined absolutely dramatically. So in countries like um, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, population dynamics have declined in population growth in Taiwan gone down from seven uh, to under two in one generation. Children, uh, so the, top, the lowest fertility rates in the world, the top or the lowest five countries in terms of fertility rates are all developing countries. We used to think of Italy, France as being the low fertility countries. It's now developing countries. When women get jobs, when women are urbanized, when they are educated, uh, fertility drops within a generation. And so the projection uh, for fertility decline is even more dramatic than longevity declines. And uh, and you see a convergence uh, around two around the world on these. Of course, again, Southern Africa, as we'll come back to, is slightly different on these dynamics. If you look at the uh, aging pyramids, this has dramatic consequences going out to 2050. This is Italy. This is very classic of what's happening in Europe, uh, but also in some other countries. Not that different, in fact, to Hong Kong and, and Korea, South Korea, this dynamic. And what you see is You're going to have very small populations supporting massive groups of people over retirement age. The bulk of the population moving up into those categories. And so obviously one asks questions about pensions reform, about who's going to pay, where's the health care going to come from, and where's the workforce going to come from uh, in countries uh, like this. But extreme inversion of the population pyramids. Uh, over time, with many people, of course, living into their 90s. Now, China is very interesting because whereas this is now being branded the coffin shape uh, of the richest countries, there's also uh, the skyscraper structure, uh, which is uh, where China is going. And this is a, a percentage decile structure, and you'll see about the same amount of people in each category uh, decile of the age uh, group in this. Another thing you'll notice is many more females than men. Many provinces in China, 1.3 uh, males to female in the, in the younger groups because uh, people are self-selecting to have males. One of the implications of new technologies, of course. But in the older ones, uh, females live longer, less stressed, happier people, I guess. Uh, So uh, this is going to have dramatic implications. Of course, the majority of the aged people in the world will be in Asia. There'll be about Uh, 1.8 billion uh, aged people by this period. Of about 1.6 of them will be in uh, in Asia. And again, questions around how you sustain this, uh, how you begin to think about who supports the pensioners, how you live. Poverty in the future will be much more intergenerational question with the aged uh, increasingly. Without resources, South Africa is a much more classic sort of structure looking out to um, to 2050, and uh, this is actually a comparative advantage of South Africa going forward. It will have a labour force. Uh, who will be able to support a much smaller share of aged people. And so actually this is a very good place to get old, apart from all the wonderful things around the wine lands and everything else. There will be lots of workers here to pay pensions uh, and to look after you uh, and push you around if you have to be right at the top there. Um, so uh, the, this, this, of course, is, is again a particular result of the sorts of dynamics that are going on at the moment uh, in But as it plays through, uh, it's a much healthier structure. Now, a key question in the uh, rich countries is where's workers going to come from? The big challenge of the future is not going to be too many people, uh, as people used to think, but too few. That's the story of 2050. uh, Too few people, and uh, can migration begin to solve this problem? We have a very good group. Sorry, all the data you've just seen comes from our group working on aging, which is a great group of about 30 people, demographers, sociologists, and others. Um, This is work that was initially produced by a migration group taken on by the UN uh, for some work. And the the question here is, can migration be part of the solution? We are very, very pro uh, more open migration for many reasons, not only labor force reasons, but mainly the, the reasons around ideas, the way that migrants carry. Uh, Technology and ideas in their heads and lead to much more rapid growth in that way. But this is an interesting graph. This is the labor force in the rich countries which will go down from about 800 million to 600 million by 2050. Um, And of course, uh, you'd have to have migration flows which are about five times the current uh, migration flows into these countries to begin to compensate and you still wouldn't uh, for the sorts of uh, deficits in labor. So major questions in the rich countries regarding labor dynamics uh, going forward. There will certainly be a lot more migration and how that's managed uh, is going to be an absolutely key question. Because the Asia, is, we think, is going to continue to display very, very robust growth and basically absorb its labor force. So uh, these are actually World well, Bank projections that I worked on before I left. Um, and what you see And this isn't really influenced by the current crisis because the fundamentals are still very similar. Projections, this is only to 2030. Economists really can't think beyond uh, tomorrow. 2030 is stretching it a very long way and 2050 is over the cliff. But um, these are to 2030 projected average growth rates, which are not that dissimilar, slightly less robust, but not that dissimilar to the sorts of growth rates that we've seen uh, in recent decades. And that's really due to a whole series of combinations of factors and assumptions regarding uh, productivity increases, technical change, domestic demand, uh, and labor dynamics. A lot of the the question, of course, is will this growth uh, in flows continue between countries? These are historical flows and illustrate the point about globalization that I was making before. In 1990, uh, or thereabouts, in this period, things were dramatically changed in the global economy. Uh, the Berlin War fell, China opened up uh, rapidly from that period on, and there were changes in trade areas, thanks in part to the work that Minister Erwin did at the time, uh, and in many other areas, which led to uh, this acceleration of flows uh, in this period. So you see, after a long period of very steady cross-border flows. And just to decipher the code for you, that's foreign direct investment, that's overseas development assistance, portfolio investment is bond and equity flows. Um, You see, in in all these flows, very unstable, but structural changes from this period on. And these have continued uh, now. Remittances are much higher. Of course, the the current crisis is going to let these fall back a bit. But the overall structural change remains um, in shape. I certainly believe, will continue to drive these dynamics of growth uh, going forward. An interesting uh, question is whether the stock market dynamics are going to change fundamentally, given where we are now, where everyone's seeing the end of the stock markets. Um, this, this is a long-term trend. These are log trends, okay? exponential growth rates, and they just tell a phenomenal story of this continual growth. These are global composites of stock markets, Uh, a phenomenal story of continued growth. You see crises like the 1929 uh, crash and and this is the more recent one where we basically that sort of I did that on Friday before leaving Oxford so that's Friday's market close Um, but you see that we're back to 96 levels Uh, but these in the long term uh, remain basically blips on a very long term trend if you take a 200 view. And a key question is, has something is there some structural change that's happened or will we see a return to these sorts of power law relationships uh, like this and um, I would suggest that there is some structural change uh, but, uh, that, but it, it will be overcome and this is a structural change which is regarding something rather fundamental and that's the ability of globalization to manage technological change and interdependence and so what we're seeing in this financial crisis, I believe, is the first of what I believe will be a whole series of systemic crises in the 21st century, and these are systemic crises which arise because of fragility coming from interdependence and globalization, and they'll be manifest in many dimensions and I'll come to them. Uh, In other words, although our interdependence has brought enormous benefits It comes with a cost, and the cost is fragility. The cost is that we are much more dependent on the whole world and on each other than we ever were uh, and could be imagined to be from historical reference points. And so all historical reference points, as we'll see, uh, become rather difficult to use because of this growing interdependence uh, in in virtually every dimension. And so this is the the two-sided dimension of, of technology, technology which brings huge opportunity and has allowed us to grow in that way that I began with. has allowed us uh, through containerization, fiber optics, vaccines and everything else you can imagine, uh, allowed us to be at the best point in human history, uh, but also the capacity to to not only blow ourselves up, as I'll come to, but also uh, to not manage it effectively. And we have a whole series of new technologies, -technologies, hyper-technologies, that are growing exponentially coming into these future years. So we've come a dramatic distance the one that is perhaps illustrative of many technologies is the computer uh, phenomena, or the microchip phenomena. And what you see here is many things on this graph. Um, so this is what you can get for a $1,000, okay? It's all normalized by cost. So this isn't the most powerful computers in the world. This is what I can get on my PC, and most people now, uh, middle-income people, can buy. And you see this is a logarithmic scale, so this is going up. And the other thing is that the trend is steepening. So for $1,000 now, you'll basically get a lizard. Um, and that's pretty impressive uh, because lizards are extremely complex characters. Uh, and by 2025 or thereabouts, and if you're interested in this, you should read Ray Kurzweil's work on the singularity, um, will be hitting uh, human brain capacity, perhaps. And there's lots of controversy around that issue because we don't understand the brain. Uh, but to give you a sense of this, um, all of your uh, telephones are more powerful than the total computing capacity of the first NASA Apollo structure. Okay, Just one phone. Um, PlayStation 3, for those of you that like that sort of thing, is more powerful than Deep Blue, which was the world's most powerful computer 10 years ago that beat Kasparov. So that's what's happening. A million times improvement uh, every 20 years for the same price. Okay, so this is a phenomenon which is going to permeate everything, everywhere, uh, and it's difficult to know what it can't do. So uh, I was just in email correspondence this afternoon with a colleague of mine who's working with Fujitsu on a 10 to the power of 16 per second new computer. Okay, per second—that's the number of exchanges this computer can do. What they call flops, 10 to the power of 16. It's difficult to imagine that in a second. Um, and, and what they're going to do with it, or what we're going to do in collaboration with Fujitsu, is model totally the human heart, okay, with everything that goes on in the human heart. And so instead of having to do trials, you will have a heart on a computer that you can do in real time, uh, in impact events, uh, drug events, and so on. So this is, this is where it's going with enormous potential, but um, it will permeate absolutely uh, everything. Now, one of the other consequences of this, of course, has been information ability and overload. So this is, again, a logarithmic scale. This is in billions of gigabytes. Our brain has about a billion uh, gigabytes in it of capacity. That's our ability to crunch. And what you see now is that every year um, we are producing, uh, well, we are, not the computer industry is producing about 20 billion gigabytes uh, of uh, new information, new. The total amount of information ever produced in human history is about 10 billion gigabytes. So much more information is produced every year than in the whole of history. Um, and of course, the good news for those of you that care about this is that storage capacity is growing even faster. So that there used to be a concern around the capacity to hold all of this stuff. But as you know, um, the little, the little uh, USB stick I've got here is a is a 10 gigabyte thing, and it costs something like 25 dollars. So that's what you get now. Uh, that would have cost about a hundred times that 10 years ago. No, in fact, you wouldn't have been able to get it. So, what does this mean? This means that information is everywhere, that we can access information in ways which are unimaginable, and that the idea of learning has to change very fundamentally. So mean, there's no way you can begin to learn everything about any subject and learning is about the ability to draw in to network, to contact and when you see people who can do this effectively it's, it's absolutely extraordinary but it's a different way of beginning to think about information. It brings huge potential. You can be sitting in a village in South Africa or in China or in Oxford and have exactly the same information at your potential. Um, if you've got broadband. So uh, this, this, this is something which is going to change the balance of power. You don't have to go to great libraries anymore. Uh, and it's going to be huge opportunities to bring new people into the world. And I think it's going to be, lead to explosions. This, together with education and mass education in places which didn't have it before, like South Africa, is going to lead to an explosion of genius around the world, an explosion of ability to do new things which were unimaginable. And so it's one of the reasons why I believe technological change is going to grow at an accelerating pace. The other big trend around this is the miniaturization of everything. Not only of microchips, which are going down to molecular level, but we are building structures uh, in our nano group in Oxford, which are at molecular size. So this is um, about a hundredth uh, or a thousandth of the size of a human hair. these are invisible particles. This is actually not a photograph, it's a sort of mock-up. Uh, but that's a dust mite sitting on a nanobot uh, and a little nano machine. Uh, obviously, dust mites are invisible. And where we're going with this is to produce nano needles, nanomedicine delivery structures. But no one understands nano. Uh, no one knows whether it's toxic, whether it's a new asbestiosis. And so this is a big, big issue. It's already in many products. So it's being used before it's being understood, which is typical of most technologies. Um, and uh, of course that's a major, major issue. But it's certainly going to be a way of the future with much potential. Things that you can't see that exist um, and that are very effective in doing what they're doing, uh, which is an exciting thought. The other uh, major change of the future uh, is the way that medicine happens and its potential. And, of course, this is not something which is going to be available for everyone, which is a major issue. Uh, But the potential between genetics uh, and between stem cell, uh, interfacing with computers and new chemicals, uh, to fundamentally transform the way we understand our own uh, way of doing things, and also to deal with many of the chronic diseases uh, uh, today is, I think, something that's coming. Of course, everyone always gets these predictions wrong. Uh, everyone thinks cures are around the, can- around the corner, not least for cancer. And others. And that's proved much, much more difficult. But when you see what's happening, in, particularly in genetic and stem cell, it's one of the most exciting things. Uh, I saw my own, for the first time, uh, a stem cell, uh, a heart cell throbbing, uh, in a vitri bowl, and it really was one of the most exciting things. This was created from basically an embryonic stem base, a embryonic base. Absolutely amazing, but ability to create any part of the body uh, from this. So it's the reason I believe that there will not be a Special Olympics for disabled people in 2050, for example, because by that stage, anyone who's, whatever, a young person that competes in the Paralympics uh, will have access, I hope anyway, that I'm right on this to uh, things that for example would we'll be able to fix spinal injury uh, fix all sorts of other things and of course in combination with genetic identification now the, the, the very scary thing about all of this is that it's not going to be available on any national health service even uh, in the rich countries perhaps Switzerland but not the national health service in the UK and certainly not I think, in South Africa. And so you get into a very, very difficult debate, not only whether you should be pushing all these technologies uh, and supporting them. And we've created a stem cell institute, we've created a nanomedicine institute in the 21st century school. so we are. But who's going to benefit from them? And are we going into a much more bipolar world, where the wealthy with access to technology will live well into their hundreds, uh, be relatively healthy, have much less uh, disability, and be chemically enhanced was probably to be able to concentrate more and on IQ measures have higher IQs uh, by 2050 but poorest communities will not have any of that or poor countries uh, and so they will be structurally as well as for all the other reasons uh, differentiated against. And So this is a very big ethical issue amongst the many ethical issues that certainly worries me uh, going forward and which I believe is something which certainly should worry country like South Africa, um, so where are we going with this, who's in control, what access and who will benefit uh, from these sorts of technologies. So the, many of these things are both have enormous upside opportunity, but also have these very difficult questions associated with them, and that is why Jim Martin, uh, as the Vice Chancellor indicated, gave uh, a big grant to Oxford University to work on these issues because the idea is that humanity is at the crossroads, that this could be a period of either the most extraordinary opportunity, which will benefit all mankind, or it might only benefit a very few and we get into sort of new eugenics race, um, or even worse still, we all all get blown up. But it's the combination of technological change, interdependence and fragility coming from globalization, and access to information coming from the web and other places. So, all of these things acting in tandem have given individuals the ability to act uh, and impact in ways which could not have happened uh, a very long time ago. And so, the part of this risk spectrum that worries us most is this existential or global catastrophic risk X. And we have a group uh, called the Future of Humanity Institute, modest name. Um, uh, working on, on these issues. And so they worried on this sort of, on this stuff. Now, I don't know if any of you read Martin Rees. I don't know Mike has. Martin Rees' book, uh, Our Final Century. Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, uh, president of the Royal Society in the UK. I actually think he's probably the smartest person in Britain. But he puts a probability of 50% on civilization not surviving the 21st century. Uh, well, he's a very happy, charming chap. Uh, um, and that's because of these sorts of risks uh, as well as some of those that I I won't have time to go into now let's say he's very gloomy and it's only a 5% chance of course if that was the case there should be much more effort globally going in to think about these because even that uh, as we know from car insurance and many other areas of insurance in the world is an enormous probability that needs to be thought about and managed. And this is both because of natural, and some people worry about that. I mean the classic example of this is sort of an asteroid impact. I don't worry about this one at all, um, because I think firstly, there's nothing we can do about it. uh, And secondly, I don't think it's going to happen. I worry about this one. This is us creating things or doing things, either wittingly or unwittingly, accidents. That's what Martin Rees worries most about, accidents uh, that happen, uh, which will lead to mass mayhem. Now the problem with trying to think about all of this is for the reasons I've been indicating, I don't think that the past is an indicator uh, of the future. The world has changed in such fundamental ways uh, that the past data sets, and we look at a lot of these, are not much good. So we're getting into the sort of tipping point environment uh, which you see in, of course, in physics, uh, where water boils and various other physical state changes. You're seeing this. You've seen it before historically, uh, and we've seen it now with the financial crisis. Uh, these tipping points, which were totally unpredicted, and once they've happened, uh, they're upon us, and then no one really understood why they didn't think about it. Very complex systems often have this characteristic. I mean, the classic examples are hurricane prediction systems, which is a massive, multi-billion-dollar effort in the U.S. Even the day before Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, no one knew what was happening. Uh, it's the scale it happened, but certainly three days they didn't. That's $3 billion of observation and many, many generations of modeling uh, in computing. And these are, these are the predictions of the U.S. hurricane activity. They always get it wrong, they always cluster, and they always overreact in terms of tweaking their models, which is very common of a lot of these complex system modeling. So we can't rely on that, and we also can't rely on the other thing that people tend to do, which is perception modeling. So you know, you send out a survey to a thousand risk officers, and you ask them what they think their risks are, and then you digest the information, you tell everyone that's what the risks are. That's basically as useful as reading the newspapers, um, because it reflects perceptions. Uh, which tend to be very backward-looking, and they jerk around. This is year-to-year changes in the World Economic Forum's risk analysis, which jerk around like crazy. So I'll talk about some of the things that worry me, um, and with these caveats that uh, we often don't know the complexity. The one that's obviously on everyone's mind in many areas is global climate change. Uh, This is the IPCC data from 2006, already remarkably regarded as completely out of date. Uh, because the modeling has got much more sophisticated. The power of computers, what they can do, has doubled in this time, and there's been a lot more resources going into it. I'm becoming increasingly a climate pessimist. Uh, We have five different groups working on climate change in the 21st century school, focusing on water, forests, energy, um, the interface with technology, and the sort of economic aspects, carbon trading and so on. The the part that worries me the most at the moment is actually the forest and ocean, particularly the ocean side of it, which of course absorbs 40% uh, of the global carbon. So small changes in the way the oceans behave lead to dramatic changes in this. This matters hugely uh, for income, for poverty, for agriculture, and for many things, the way this turns out. Average numbers don't mean anything. Where people live won't be average, Uh, they're going to be around the extremes that this creates. And, and that's obviously a whole subject of a lecture. What's, what's difficult uh, to work through from South Africa's perspective, of course, is that it's a very high uh, carbon per capita producer. It's one of the highest of the developing countries. It's already up there with many of the rich countries. And it's only growing up its growth curve. So like many countries, and China, which is much lower down but growing much more rapidly, uh, these are dramatically difficult things. Uh, where you have a global problem that's created historically by the rest of the world and you have to be a big part of the solution going forward. How to do that, how to manage this in a way that at the same time can reconcile income, poverty, development objectives with uh, global uh, needs is going to be, I think, the, one of the biggest challenges going forward. With Lots of pressures uh, coming on this. The one that worries me second is pandemics. Uh, for some reason I don't know, I learned a lot about uh, history, of world wars, of other crises when I went to school. I never learned anything about pandemics. These are the biggest killers of mankind historically. There's probably ten times as many people died uh, from pandemics of the First World War than during the First World War. We just don't think about pandemics. It's very difficult to understand why so little energy has gone into them. But this this is dramatic for the same reasons I indicated before. Interdependence, complexity, a lot of travel. Uh, I think pandemics will have a much greater impact in the future uh, than they have in the past. And so catching them at the source is even more critical uh, than it ever was uh, before. Uh, And that requires a lot of new technology as well. It's not happening in the way that it should and we're doing a lot of work on this. We have a group on emergent infections. One of the things to ask was what do you do once a pandemic hits? What the politicians will do is close the borders and do various things. That's not gonna save many people. But the question is what do you do if you've only got a set number of drugs? How do you distribute them? What drugs to have? These sorts of questions are things we're working on. You can have dramatic uh, impact on the outcomes. By thinking about these things before they happen, so that when they happen, you know what to do, and you've got the drugs in the right places, uh, and so on. So this is an extremely high priority. Uh, it's not a question of if; it's a question of when. Uh, the third one that worries me is bio-risk. Um, you could pick up, if you know how to, the smallpox uh, DNA structure off the web and you could go and buy uh, machines that are just about in production, but you can't buy them commercially yet, to print out and manufacture the DNA and create something which would certainly wreck uh, a big city, if not more. So what do you do about this? How do you manage this technology going forward? Uh, Should we screen at Oxford or at UCT people doing advanced biochemistry degrees? Should we worry about who's in the lab? And what they're cooking, and this is what you saw with the Antrax case in the US. Um, what do you do about it? What does it mean for academic freedom uh, and all the other civil liberties that we v- value so dearly? These are key questions of the future. I think we must probably address them after the event, like always, um, but they are ones that will come and bite us, I'm afraid, uh, in the future. This is becoming more and more. This is just a small clean room, a million dollars, you can cook terrible things. And uh, for many fundamentalists, that is not a lot of money. The fourth one that, that I've alluded to already, uh, which I think we need to think a lot about how we manage, is human modification. Where are we going as humans? For the first time in human history, we can actually change the way we are. Um, I don't know, I'm sure they don't do it at UCT. Kids at Oxford take uh, medaphilin and take various other things to increase their concentration before an exam. Uh, I just drank coffee, but it's got a lot more sophisticated, so we don't know what it does. There's no drug trials in it for that use. Um, This is, that's just the tip of the iceberg uh, of where this is going in terms of the ability to change in a rather fundamental way what we are as human beings. Our moods, our intelligence, our concentration, and of course, What's happening in sports, where you have testing and so on, will seem absolutely naive compared to where we're heading with the brain. So, should UCT screen students before they write entrance exams uh, to check what they are, or what was sprinkled by their mother or father on their breakfast cereal that morning? Um, and if they, do, if UCT decides no, that's not a good idea, but its competitor somewhere else says ah, we should. What sort of dynamics? And obviously those are the questions we're thinking about as we go forward with this. um, Does it matter? There are lots of people. And this is a big group in Oxford. We have about 30 people working on human modification in different ways. A lot of it is about the ethics and law around this and what you can and should do around it because there's absolutely no part of this that won't be modified uh, in the future. The big question, of course, is are we getting any wiser? we can do what we want but are we able to make decisions in a way that's any different to that we made 1000 2000 or 200,000 years ago when we came out of this part of the world and uh, a lot of the evidence isn't clear on that a key question going forward here is going to be of course how south africa south africa gets through and south africa's already you know proving that it can break all records on this with its hiv AIDS treatment uh, with antiretrovirals, but how it gets through this period, which makes it so different to many of the other dynamics we've talked about. So all of these things come together in very, very complex ways. Uh, And the the real challenge for a university is to begin to get a handle on how you think about interdependence, how you think about what presents itself in the real world not as a discipline problem, a physics problem or an economics problem, whatever, but as a problem which is manifested through an issue or an opportunity. Huge opportunity, but very different worlds. And of course, the immediacy in in South Africa and the immediacy of development challenges often overwhelms these longer-term issues, and should in many ways. But these are the things that we're beginning to think about. Now the big crisis for the world, I believe, and perhaps the most worrying side, is that the global management structure is absolutely fossilized, out of date, and totally unable to deal with any of these issues. And you have to ask yourself whether you would trust any of these institutions to think about any of these issues. And as we've seen with the financial crisis, the IMF didn't have a clue it was coming, although it was created to deal with it. Uh, let alone now manage it. And it's fighting desperately to say, actually, we still want to be here to fight the next financial crisis. But the Chinese and many others are saying, you must be joking. Uh, you've wrecked up on the Asian crisis. You've wrecked up on this, and you still want a third chance. Uh, but this is true of all the global institutions. They are not institutions of the 21st century. But the very difficult question is, so what? what can, can you create a new institution? Can you transform these? What are we thinking? Uh, is the right way to respond to these global challenges? How do you begin to get something new going on, which not only is legitimate and accountable, but also effective and able to deal with these? Maybe there's something in incipient G20, uh, but that's very unidimensional around finance at this stage. That question is going to determine this outcome. We have global challenges, we have a much more complex and interdependent world where decisions taken in one place will dramatically affect others. And we have this very national structure of government and decision making. And so we really, I think, do need to be able to raise our science up and beyond this. Within the 21st century school, we have 15 different groups working on a range of problems. We're adding a few more in the coming months. The cluster around medicine, as I've talked about, with a lot of ethics as well in that. A cluster around climate change and energy and then some social issues like migration conflict and this one which is an interface of technology and science and that one which is the long-term future these are the guys that think about 2090 and I, I try and think about 2020 on a good day um, so uh, it's, it's very diverse and very growing that by the way is a nano needle uh, going through a cell, modeling the impact of nanoneedles on the cells. So very exciting, and obviously the challenge uh, for all of us is not only to work within these areas, and all of these are based in different departments of the university, um, ranging, some of them three or four departments, and many of them, many more, uh, not only to work with the departments, but to work together. So what, what do these things say to each other? And how do we begin to get a more interdisciplinary view of the future? Uh, I sit under an Indian uh, elephant, unfortunately, not an African one, in the Indian Institute in, uh, building in, in Oxford, that building. And uh, I would be delighted if we could form a close collaboration with UCT. Thank you very much.